redefine the present. This is Shields High. Gather around, friends, for I have a story to tell. It is the tale of the fall of Constantinople, one of the most important battles in all history. And while scant attention is paid to it in most textbooks and schoolrooms, the fall of Constantinople was a turning point in a thousand years of Christianity holding the line in the East. For a millennium since its founding as a Christian capital in the year of our Lord, 324, Constantinople was the first Christian nation on earth, founded by Constantine, who would give it his name. It had held out against centuries of siege and assaults by various invading and barbarian tribes. In fact, the Turks, who were finally able to overrun the defenses of Constantinople, give us the term horde, taken from Ordu. But since the fall of Rome in the 4th century, Constantinople had been the greatest city of the Mediterranean basin by far, and it stood like a massive sentinel at the crossroads of Asia and Europe, barring the Muslim conquest, which began in the 7th century, from entering the heart of Europe itself. Within Islam, Constantinople was known as the bone in the throat of Allah. And for over 1,100 years, up until that fateful spring of 1453, Constantinople had been able to hold out against siege 23 separate times. The only time it was successfully stormed and plundered was during the Fourth Crusade when it was pillaged and there was a great massacre within the city. The Byzantines were the last remnant of the great culture of ancient Rome. They had converted to Christianity under the Emperor Constantine and they considered themselves Roman. In fact, it was not for hundreds of years after the fall of Constantinople that the term Byzantine would be applied to them. Byzantine, by the way, comes from ancient Greece. Uh, legend had it that Byzos had founded a city on a similar site a thousand years before Constantine founded his. Byzos gave his name to Byzantium, and that is how we get the term Byzantines. To the Muslims... Uh, the Romans of the Byzantine Empire were infidels or pagans. They were non-believers who were to be conquered or put to the sword. Constantinople had been the one city to defy the conquest of jihad, and from the earliest days of the Islamic conquest, Constantinople had been both an obstacle and an obsession. There was even a hadith, a saying attributed to the Prophet Muhammad that said, in the jihad against Constantinople, one-third of the Muslims will allow themselves to be defeated, which Allah cannot forgive. One-third will be killed in battle, making them wondrous martyrs, and one-third will be victorious. Constantinople was also situated on what could be considered the most important strategic real estate of the ancient world. It was the gateway between Europe and Asia, and the passageway for untold riches from the east 
as well as a waterway that connected the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, which in turn led out to the Atlantic and the great oceans of the world. In the 15th century, Constantinople literally and ideologically separated the Christian and Muslim worlds, the West from the East. But it was a city in steep decline. The empire of the Byzantines was picked off piece by piece by first the Seljuk Turks and later the Ottoman Turks, named for Osman. But it was at the Battle of Manzikert in AD 1071 that the Turks routed a major Byzantine field army, and from then on, most of the land of what had formerly been the Byzantine Empire was either seized or in the process of being seized by the Turks. At the time of the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Turks had already established full control of the Anatolian Peninsula, as well as to the west of Constantinople when they built their capital at Adrianople, called Edirne by the Turks. So while the Byzantines had managed to defy centuries of Islamic expansionism at their expense, it finally came to pass that there was no longer any room for the Byzantines to run. They were left with their city of Constantinople and were surrounded on all sides by the warlike and expansionistic as well as highly ideologically motivated Ottoman Turks. And once that city was taken, it was known that Constantinople would be the jewel of the Ottoman Empire and the forward operating base which threatened all of Christendom. But first, they had to take the city. Chapter 1. The Byzantines' Desperate Decline By the mid-15th century, Constantinople was a decrepit shell of what the city had formerly been. Civil wars, loss of territory, and massive population decline afflicted the city. It was estimated at one point that there were half a million people living in Constantinople. By the time of the Ottoman siege, the city had something closer to 50,000 total inhabitants. St. Sophia, whose dome had inspired Christians and non-Christians from all across the Mediterranean world, had been damaged severely in earthquakes. And while the great Theodosian walls built in the 5th century had withstood barbarian invasion time and again, there were constant repairs that were also needed. And if we're going to talk about the suffering of the city it's worth pointing out it was the first European port to suffer from the Black Death in the mid-14th century. And it had suffered from many poor administrative and leadership decisions stretching back for decades. Among the worst, in a moment of near lunacy, a Byzantine emperor actually dissolved the Imperial Navy in AD 1284, a sea power situated on the most important maritime crossroads of the world at the time, 
no longer had a navy to call its own when the Ottomans came with both their massive land army and their vast armada. But while the empire's coffers were dwindling and the Byzantines had to engage in an unfortunate reliance on mercenaries to assist them in their warfare, their greatest asset was the city itself. And the enormous Theodosian walls built by the Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius II, they were a marvel to be seen and still very effective. Any attacker who wanted to take Constantinople by land would have to get across a deep ditch and then scale an outer wall which had towers and turrets for the purposes of assisting the defenders and then there was an additional interior wall beyond that that was even higher at 40 feet and therefore you had three killing zones for the defenders. Siege warfare hadn't changed all that much throughout the medieval period just as was the case when the various Islamic forces took down the Crusader castles, the tactics for bringing a city to its knees were straightforward. You could cut it off from the outside world and essentially starve out the inhabitants into surrender. You could storm the city and take it by force, or, as was the case at the Great Crusader Siege of Antioch, you could pay off people on the inside and take the city by treachery. One of the reasons that Constantinople had been so difficult for the various armies that had tried to successfully lay siege to the city in the centuries leading up to the fall of Constantinople was that most of the city's perimeter was on the sea. And the Strait of Marmara, which leads up to the Bosphorus, the opening that then turns into the Black Sea, a narrow stretch of water in between it. But all this made it quite difficult to cut off the city. You not only had to have supremacy on land, but also bring an armada into the fight that was able to cut off all reinforcements of both personnel and supply. And for this naval component, some of the other Christian states and kingdoms played a critical role for Constantinople, notably the Venetians and the Genoese. In fact, the Genoese, who were the hated rivals of the Venetians and vice versa, uh, had established a colony across the Bosphorus from Constantinople called Galata, that would become an essential staging ground for both sides at critical points in the siege, despite the fact that technically Genoa was neutral in the conflict and even the great power of the Turkish war machine respected the problems that they would have should all-out hostilities with Genoa and Venice begin. Nonetheless, Venetian and Genoese sailors and men of considerable military skill were crucial, both at the defense of the Theodosian walls against the Ottoman barrages and in some of the sea battles that became defining moments of the entire siege. 
Altogether, it's estimated that at the beginning of the siege, there were about 8,000 total defenders, including the contingents of various Christians that even included mention of a rogue Scot in the defense of Constantinople. Leading what would be this valiant and doomed defense was an emperor who shared his name with the founder of the city itself, Constantine the Eleventh. He was known as a brave and pious man and certainly, under the circumstances, managed a much more stalwart effort and close-fought campaign than anybody could have thought was likely or even possible. But as the Turkish war machine approached the walls of Constantinople in 1453, the odds were overwhelmingly against the Emperor Constantine and the city that also bore his name. Simply put, there was no military in the Mediterranean world that could even begin to match the logistical might of the Ottoman Empire. The sultans had become masters of moving and feeding and taking care of large armies on campaign. One of the major advantages that the Ottomans had at the time was that they had a standing army. Unlike many of the Christian states, they did not rely on levies of peasants and farmers who had no training in warfare and no formal education to speak of. The Ottomans knew how to raise, pay, and deploy vast military force. When the Ottomans had initially emerged from infighting on the Anatolian Peninsula, they were best known, as all of their Turkic brethren were, for their horse archers. But the Ottoman military machine had expanded well beyond that into specializations that were not just effective for the time period, but revolutionary. First, there were the Azaps, who were the foot soldiers of the Ottoman military machine. They were largely conscripts or people brought into the military on a seasonal basis in the hopes of plunder. In this way, they mirrored many of the Christian armies that they faced. They would come and go based upon a particular campaign and didn't have much in the way of weapons and armor other than a shield and scimitar. The Spahis were the landed nobility and the cavalry force of the Ottoman Empire. They were responsible for bringing a contingent of soldiers with them when called upon, much like knights in the feudal system of medieval Europe. And then there was the most famous Ottoman military invention of all, the Janissaries, or Janissari for new soldier. The Janissaries were Christians who were taken as children from their homes in the Balkans and raised in the Ottoman court. They were instructed in state-of-the-art warfare and also received a education that allowed them to be effective military and administrative leaders from the Ottoman state. They were known for their loyalty to the Sultan and their bravery in battle and were skilled with swords, lances, axes, and were even early adopters of the firearms that the Ottoman Empire deployed as early as any of their European counterparts, such as the arquebus. And that then brings us to the Sultan himself, Mehmet II. He would come to be known to the Muslim world as Fatih, for conqueror. He saw himself 
at a young age as a Ghazi or Muslim holy warrior, and he viewed his struggle for Constantinople as a fight against the Christian infidel. His plan to take Constantinople was a jihad. It was a holy war. To the European chroniclers of the age, Mehmet was a vicious despot. From the earliest days, Mehmet established that he was ruthless. Ottoman succession was a vicious blood sport. There was no quarter given even for siblings of the sultan who were infants. Upon Mehmet's succession to the throne, he had his own baby half-brother, known as Little Ahmed, drowned in the bath. Mehmet then had the executioner, who had acted on his orders, executed and sent the mother of the drowned baby boy off to be married, never to be heard from again. Mehmet was the first among sultans to codify this practice. By royal decree, he wrote that whichever of my sons inherits the throne, it behooves him to kill his brothers in the interests of world order. He was obsessed with Christian geography, politics, and military strategy, and looked for every way possible to tighten the noose around Constantinople before the fateful mobilization of his entire military machine. He recognized that before he could even hope to storm the city, he had to cut off its roots of supply, which meant that he set out to create a fortification on the Bosphorus that could shut off the approach from the Black Sea by boats. This castle, which was constructed by Mehmet's crews and foremen with breakneck speed, came to be known as the Throat Cutter. The Byzantines, alarmed by this clear act of aggression, sent an emissary to Mehmet, and he told the diplomat, in not so many words, that he can do whatever he wants to do, they can't stop him, and that the next emissary who showed up to say otherwise would be skinned alive. It was not an idle threat. Mehmet was capable of unbelievable cruelty, as he would show time and again during his rule. Impalement was a favorite punishment meted out by Mehmet, it was horrific. The victim would have a long, sharp pole inserted into the rectum and was then hoisted upright on that pole while massive internal bleeding and the destruction of internal organs brought a gruesome death that could range from near instantaneous to hours of agony. Mehmet would deploy impalement time and again to make examples of anyone who displeased him. Often the sultan would order impalements and then have the poles topped with rotting corpses left in full display of the enemy and even his own troops as a warning. In the spring of 1453, Mehmet took down all of the regional fortifications not in but around Constantinople that could have assisted in the city's preparations for a siege or, in the event of a breakout, come to their aid. And there was one additional innovation that Mehmet brought to the battlefield, the large-scale use of cannons. Gunpowder was first trickling into European ports around the 14th century. And yes, gunpowder was quickly seen as a military game-changer, but the early technological applications of it were limited. Many of the weapons, including cannons deployed on the battlefield, were unreliable and could pose as much of a threat to the crews firing them as to the enemy across the battlefield. 
but the Sultan recognized that cannons would be the one tool that he could bring that so many of those before him who would try to take the city of Constantinople had not had at their disposal. He had massive cannons cast out of bronze. In fact, in a twist of irony, much of the bronze was salvaged from church bells of conquered Christian cities that the Ottomans had previously taken. The largest of the cannons cast by Mehmet's gun crews and metallurgists was 27 feet long and shot a stone ball eight feet in circumference that weighed over a thousand pounds. Merely moving the enormous cannons was a tremendous logistical feat that required hundreds of men and dozens upon dozens of oxen, one lashed to another. With his guns finally cast and his men called up and assembled, Mehmet gathered a force of roughly 100,000 in total and because of the speed of the guns that they had to carry with them, the massive cannons that dragged them deep into the mud and slowed down the baggage train, at a few miles a day, the massive Ottoman horde made its way from Edirne to within sight of Constantinople's exterior wall. On April 5th, 1453, the Ottomans emplaced their cannons, set up a vast series of tents for their camp, and prepared for one of the most important sieges, one of the most important battles in all history. And it all started with the first true artillery barrage the world had ever seen. Chapter 2, The Turkish Onslaught Try, if you will, for a minute to put yourself in the shoes of those defenders, roughly 8,000 men on the Byzantine walls inside the city and manning their navy. But imagine what it would have been like in those opening minutes when the Turkish salvo shook the very ground upon which the walls that their entire defense depended upon. Imagine for a moment you are a Catalan or Genoese man-at-arms watching as an army that looked like a sea of pikes, swords, and shields on the field in front of you managed to hurdle stones larger than any man could carry, in fact, stones about the size of a large bull, hurtling that rock into the side of the fortress that you were dependent upon, not just for your survival, but for the survival of your family, your city, and perhaps even your Christian faith. That's what the defenders at Constantinople faced on that first day when they realized that the guns that Mehmet had brought to bear, designed by a Christian named Orban, were much larger and more powerful than anything they had ever seen or dreamed of before. The walls 
would not be able to withstand this barrage for long. It quickly turned into a desperate attempt to do whatever possible to shore up the holes in the walls as they formed. Masses of stone and mortar came crumbling down the side of the only hope that the defenders of Constantinople had. They quickly ran and got as much as they could in the way of barrels and implements and started to build stockades, makeshift fortifications in the spaces left by the massive rocks fired at the wall. This was surprisingly effective, and with the entirety of the city, men, women, and children pitching in, it became clear that While the walls would crumble from the massive cannons firing rocks directly into them, the walls could also, ad hoc, be rebuilt, not out of stone, but a mix of whatever material the inhabitants of Constantinople could get together. But there was also the problem of those balls fired from the cannons that would clear the walls and do devastating damage inside the city of Constantinople itself, destroying buildings, churches, and completely annihilating any human being so unlucky as to be caught in the path of one of the massive shots. The sound of Mehmet's guns could be heard five miles away from where they were in place, all the way across the Bosphorus. Meanwhile, there were also more old-school implements utilized to try and bring the walls down. Trebuchets, those catapult-like devices that had been so essential in the Muslim conquest of the city-states of the Crusaders, were also brought to bear and used with some effect, especially when added to the power and force of the cannons, which fired infrequently. And that's an important distinction here. It was difficult to use these massive cannons. The largest one could only be fired about seven times a day. So the smaller cannons, the Ottomans referred to the big one and the little ones as the bear and cubs, would also have to be fired with greater precision and accuracy. They pounded the walls and began to use a strategy whereby they would shoot across the walls in two areas and then create a triangle effect by putting the third shot in between the other two. This was more effective at crumbling down the stones of the Theodosian walls, but the inherent limitations of guns that could be very dangerous even for those firing them meant that the advantages of gunpowder and cannons were apparent but they still had a ways to go before they could completely overpower and destroy the walls. In fact, once the Ottomans realized that the Christians could replace fallen sections of the walls with a makeshift stockade, it all became too clear that this siege might extend out for quite some time. An initial sally was made of the Ottoman troops to try and jump into the breach made, And this was when the carnage of the conflict ahead would become all too apparent. The Christian Byzantine defenders had the high ground and were behind the parapets up on the ramparts. They could shoot down their longbows, crossbows, and even their arquebuses with devastating effect. 
while Ottomans had to scramble across the ditch and then try to make their way up the wall. The first effort in those initial hours of the siege was a bloodbath. The Christians were able to reuse their cannons, too small to be a threat to the Ottoman front lines, but very effective at close range when filled with smaller shot. They turned the cannons that they had, the few cannons that the Christians maintained, into shotguns of sorts. The clusters of smaller ordnance ripped through defender after defender. In fact, one of the chroniclers of the time noted that one shot from the Byzantine cannon up close, loaded with the smaller rounds, would continue to cut through defenders until it eventually lodged in the ground. The Ottomans were a tremendous military machine, but this was war with no quarter. The Byzantines fought tooth and nail to keep them from overrunning one of the damaged parts of the outer wall. The day belonged to the Byzantines, at least on land. But there was an entirely different component of this battle, the siege on the sea, which we will now turn our attention to. The first week of the siege of Constantinople was a land contest. On the one side, you had the Ottomans with their cannons and multiple assaults against the walls, and on the other, defenders who were frantically trying to repulse each minor invasion and also doing what they could to plug the holes that formed in the Theodosian walls as a result of Mehmet's cannon barrages. But eight of the 12 miles of Constantinople's perimeter are on the sea. And if there was going to be a successful siege of the city, it was absolutely essential for the Turks to cut the city off from the water and even to assault it from the water, something that had been thought nearly impossible in previous efforts to take the city. This time around, unlike seven previous military campaigns against Constantinople, the Turks actually brought along an armada. They had a fleet of somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen full-on war galleys. Now, these were oared ships, triremes and biremes, very similar to what would have been used in Mediterranean warfare stretching back all the way to ancient Greece. The Ottomans also had about 80 or so fuste craft. These were smaller oared ships, something like a scouting vessel that also had some fighting capability, and then a series of transport barges, smaller additional craft, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 or so boats in all. On the Christian side of the naval equation, you had about 37 ships or so, so they were greatly outnumbered, but the Christian ships of the period were merchant sailing craft, much larger and sturdier and faster with a good wind than anything 
that the Muslim forces could try to match. You also had skilled crews, seafaring city-states of Genoa and Venice were among the very best seamen in the world. They absolutely knew what they were doing, and they were comfortable on the sea in all conditions. A massive 300-yard chain across the Bosphorus separated the two navies from each other, but... On April 18th, the first major naval engagement of the siege began. Now, the Ottomans were confident because of their numbers and, of course, their zeal. The fight that was to come would be an extension of the jihad on land. This was jihad by sea. The Ottoman craft smashed into the sailed vessels of the Christians, and a ferocious assault began. But here's where the draft, the height from the water of the two types of vessels, proved to be so critical an advantage for the Christian side. You see, a karak, the Muslims called it a cog, was high up from the water, and that meant that in the warfare of the time, which was primarily about boarding and turning a naval engagement into hand-to-hand combat, an elevation gave a tremendous advantage to the Christian side. The Muslim ships were oared and therefore pretty fast over short distances and quite maneuverable, but it also meant that they were low to the water and had no means of getting onto the higher deck of the Christian ships without suffering horrific casualties. They swarmed their smaller fuste and other ships around the Christian sailing vessels, and the Christians, who were well-armored as well as well-armed, unleashed hell on them. Javelins, pikes, arquebus fire, maces, lances, swords, all the implements of hand-to-hand warfare were brought to bear. The Christians were even able to rig some of their ships to drop heavy rocks and other objects in the middle of the much lower and more fragile fuste Ottoman craft and sink them right away. Keep in mind that at this time, it would have been unusual for many of those who were in these vessels to be able to swim. The sea around the Christian ships in the Bosphorus turned into a writhing mess of bloodied and screaming bodies. The Muslims fought viciously against the Christian defenders, and no quarter was given. A good wind meant that the smaller craft, while able to swarm the Christian ships, had to continuously try and move, and it actually limited their numbers. Only a few small craft at a time could try to come alongside the much higher Christian carracks, and so the advantage of numbers was limited, but the engagement stretched out for hours. The Genoese and Venetian sailors and soldiers were becoming exhausted just through the course of defending themselves for such a long period of time. From the shore... Mehmet himself, the sultan, was watching this engagement and screaming orders, exhortations, promises, 
and threats to the various Muslim ship captains, soldiers, and seamen because he knew that the morale of the entire engagement could turn upon how this display of no-holds-barred naval warfare played out. And then, suddenly, for the Christian side, it seemed that disaster struck. The wind stopped. So instead of the sailing ships able to move along while the smaller Muslim craft tried to board them and overtake them, now they were sitting ducks. The swarms around them were so close that the smaller ships could be used as bridging craft from one to another so that reinforcements could be brought up as they tried to scale the sides of the ships and were repulsed time and again. It looked increasingly like the Christians on their ships would be overrun. The Christians were soon to run out of all of the various missile weapons that they had on hand. If they no longer had bolts for their crossbows, arrows for their bows, or even rocks to throw down on the Muslim defenders from their higher perches on the sailing ships, then they would be unable to defend themselves until swarmed by the Muslim mobs and it would be too late. And then, just when it seemed that Mehmet and his Ottoman fleet were going to destroy four of these stout Karaks, the wind picked up again. They were able to shake loose from the cluster of frenzied Muslim fighting men and make their way back to the relative safety of the Horn, a body of water near the city that, up until this point, was entirely in Christian hands. The Byzantines had won at sea, and Mehmet was furious. So furious, in fact, that he wanted to have the admiral of the Ottoman fleet executed, despite the fact that the admiral had lost his eye in close quarters battle. It was only when the Ottoman top circle of generals and advisors threw themselves in front of the sultan and begged for the admiral's life that the order for the execution was stayed. But Mehmet knew that this was a turning point in the siege. A major land assault on the walls had also failed. At the end of April 16th, a terrible thought began repeating itself time and again in Mehmet's mind. If they could not take the city soon, a relief fleet, or perhaps even a full-blown crusade, perhaps led by the Hungarians, John Hunyadi, or some of the other great anti-Ottoman crusaders of the era, might arrive. The siege of Constantinople was a contest of wills at this point, and if Mehmet didn't do something fast, it was one he knew he was going to lose. We'll have more on all this on our next episode of Shields High, The Fall of Constantinople, Part 2. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or follow Shields High on the iHeart app. This has been Shields High. 